session or webinar, the last one that we had scheduled for the year. Um, so we've got a special guest tonight, um, someone who's uh, really passionate about what they do. Um, and, and I'm sure as they go through the material and uh, what they've put together for you, you will really get to, to, to experience uh, their passion and also uh, just um, their expertise when it comes to, to this particular area. Uh, so a very interesting topic. You will remember that when we covered investment holdings, we touched a bit on some of the uh, dynamic that we've been seeing in terms of just the listing and delisting in the South African context. Uh, but as you will see, even from the material um, and as Aaron unpacks it, uh, he really then goes into detail just to also share some insights in terms of what um, he has also observed uh, across um, the globe and maybe some of the specific uh, circumstances that are leading uh, to what we are seeing in the local space. Uh, so very, uh, something that, as I was saying, very topical and just to see where we will really end up or the rest of the JC will end up with everything that we are seeing. So not to waste any time, um, I'll ask Aaron to then jump in and take you through what he has installed for us. Um, good evening, Aaron. Hi, good evening, Rendani. Uh, thank you again for having me. Uh, good evening, everyone. Great. No, I will sorry. share my screen in a second. Sure. And let me know if you can see that. Uh, sorted on my side. Thank you. Okay. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, um, so today, um, as Rindani mentioned, we'll we'll be we'll be covering um, JCD delisting. So we're just going to be looking into that. What could be some of the possible causes uh, for this uh, JCD listings, and basically, then what are some of the private equity strategies that could be behind um, some of these delistings, et cetera. And as always, we'll look at the news, et cetera, what, how this then applies to the academics and some personal investing tips at the end. Okay, um, it's a very, uh, I like, you know, talking to people and presenting, so feel free uh, to raise your hand and I will, um, stop when I get a chance um, so as not to, you know, ruin my train of thought because a lot of what I will tell you will not necessarily be on the slides. That's just how I prepare things. Um, and I will take your question and we can discuss it. Okay. Um, so before we, we jump into our topic, so our agenda for today, as mentioned, um, and just, you know, just some brief background on myself. Um, so currently, I'm an investment analyst at SIA Community Development Trust, um, and that is essentially the community trust that was set up by Kumba and all um, to assist with the community projects and essentially investing um, for sustainability. Um, I did my articles at EY Johannesburg uh, in the FS division, uh, where I really focused on pension, life, and a bit of asset management. 
Um, before that, I was an academic trainee uh, at NMU uh, or NMMU as it was known back then. Uh, for those of you who were at Mole Park, you may know my boss at the time, uh, Prof. Jonathan Dillon. Uh, I studied under him um, and did my AD under him. And yeah, I'm from Tabeja, uh, Port Elizabeth, as it was known. So yeah, that's it about for me. Oh, and I was at um, EY uh, Strategy and Transactions, where I was a manager in corporate finance, specializing in valuations and modeling, etc. Uh, before moving to my current post. Okay. So moving on um, to the JSC uh, delistings. Sorry, there's someone who's putting on their camera and it's distracting me. Um, thank you. Uh, so if we just look at the uh, evolution. I'm my HC. So I was saying like I haven't gone through them. But... Um, so uh, as uh, looking at the evolution of the JSC. So if we look at the turn of the century, so 1999, early 2000s, there were more than 800 or rather plus minus 800 companies that were listed on the JSC main board. Uh, so the one that you know, can't remember what the requirements were. Uh, they're not that important for APC either. Um, so don't concern yourself with that. Anyways, uh, if we look now to this year, the beginning of this year, um, we had uh, about 288, so just under 300 companies. So we've lost over 500 companies um, on the JSC main board um, in the last 20 years, 22 years or so. Okay. In total, South Africa had 332 listed companies listed across the various exchanges. Um, so just take note that 288 uh, includes, you know, uh, the JSEs, it's all of the exchanges. The other 40 or so company, I think that comes from the Cape Town Stock Exchange and there's, um, so yeah, we're looking at just the JSE then, it's, it's lost quite a lot of companies over the past, you know, 20 years. Um, if we then look at this year alone, uh, there's been 18 companies that have already delisted. And this is for a myriad of reasons. Some of them obviously struggling with the post-COVID impact, uh, not being able to get their financials back into shape. Uh, so some of them entered business rescue. There are companies who've had their trade suspended for not complying with financial records, not submitting audits in time, our old audits not being done uh, or submitted, etc. Um, and then there's companies like Basil Reed, for example, um, which is in business rescue and, and they just they still listed, but they, they haven't really been delisted. Their trading has been suspended. So if we then look at uh, one of the companies here that we've got on the left, uh, we see Long for Life, right? So Long for Life, uh, I'm not sure if it was covered, but it was an investment holding company similar to what you guys did before. Uh, long for life or the or were uh, this deal um, was finalized in June. Um, so old mutual private equity fund five um, are the owners of the underlying companies. 
which were Sportsman's Warehouse and Outdoor Warehouse. That's one holding company. Um, quite a good, quite a good company, Sportsman's Warehouse. Um, then another company was Sorbet, the Sorbet Group. Um, so that includes Sorbet Man and the general Sorbet products, which are sold through Clicks, for example. Um, then there is also their beverages company. That includes um, this bougie dash, uh, what's it called, Features and Leech, uh, and also quite a popular drink, uh, Score, um, which is one of the fastest growing energy drinks in the country, by the way. Um, if you just start noticing now that I've mentioned it to you, you'll see it at petrol stations, your local checker spa, etc., being sold with pies instead of Cokes and pies. So that was one of the advertising strategies that the new management has, or the management of uh, the beverage company they were doing, et cetera, and they've been pushing, and you'll you'll notice uh, that quite a bit score one now that I've mentioned that. Another one that's going to be happening, um, it's essentially been approved by the competition commission. There's a whole lot of um, conditions precedent that's been attached to it, like creating jobs, minimum spend, um, certain uh, items need to be discontinued. I think it's Strongbow um, because uh, of the competition, the share of the cider market, etc., cetera, uh, will be to create those types of considerations that Heineken will have to stop. Um, so it's foreign products that they brought here under the Heineken brand and the competition commission's basically saying, you need to stop selling these because the still already sell X, Y, and Z um, in these in this range. And um, yeah, uh, for competition sake, you need to do that. And this is normal. Uh, similar thing happened to SAP uh, and Miller um, when they had that massive merger, which is now SAP Miller. Uh, well, when AB InBev took over SAP Miller. Um, in the States, they had to discontinue certain beers here in South Africa as well. So if you wondered why some of your products randomly, your favorite beers disappeared in like 2018, etc., it was because of the merger. Um, so that's some of the two of the biggest deals this year. Um, and these are what we call take privates, um, simply where private equity companies um, or private companies by public companies and delisting. Okay, so that's something we'll talk about more in a second. Um, then if we look at, like I mentioned, there are companies that are currently uh, in the process of delisting or have had their share trading suspended. There's more than 10, I think it was around 14. Um, so if we look at the last seven years, we've lost about 175 companies in the last seven years, that's just over what about 25 companies a year that have been delisting. And not many of them are actually take private. So a lot of it is it's due to poor governance. Um, it can be due to liquidity requirements not being met. Um, a whole lot of reasons uh, that these things could be happening. But uh, this is not um, you know, just a South African problem. This is actually happening across the globe. So if you look at 
um, some of you know markets of similar sizes in terms of the financial markets or those that are a bit smaller like Luxembourg, they've lost about 55% um, over the same period. The London Stock Exchange lost about 21% and the Swiss Stock Exchange lost about 22%. Uh, the JSE, they said their number represented about 18% over that period. Uh, so it's not as bad as um, what it looks like um, when we compare it to other markets. But the fact of the matter remains, um, as a South African investor, uh, you know, your market and your universe, is it's, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, so one of the reasons that it, this could be happening um, is that there's a, a rise in alternative assets. So alternative assets um, really it's, it's things you know, um, it's like private equity, so private equity, property, uh, infrastructure, um, private debt, for example, renewable energy, crypto, this thing that I think is a scam and we're not going to get into today, NFTs, um, you know, it's those are essentially alternative assets. You can include other things like game lodges, wine farms, Airbnbs, etc. Uh, that's essentially alternative assets, which are things outside of your traditional classic asset classes, equities, bonds, options, etc. Okay. Um, so there's there's really been an increase in that. Uh, if we look at the South African uh, private equity market, for example, uh, I recently saw an article by one of the the heads. Uh, uh, I think it was of SAFCA, uh, South African Venture Capital Association. Um, they mentioned that there's about 40 billion uh, rand in dry powder, uh, and that's just basically um, committed capital that hasn't been spent. Uh, so there's about 40 billion from investors, mainly institutional investors, uh, sitting in the hands of private equity funds that has yet to be utilized. So obviously, um, a lot of the art guys probably going to be turning their attention to the JSE and some of the listed companies. Um, if we compare now that to, to looking at the numbers of companies that are listed, there's only been four new listings this year. Uh, reminded that there's already been 18 companies that have delisted. So the net number is what? Minus 14. Um, and there's eight expected in the coming 18 months or so, of which not all eight are going to be successful. So these guys are in pre-IPO stage. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they may actually go through with the IPO or build a book um, that satisfies the requirements for them to list. Um, another random technical term for you guys, uh, if you randomly hear book build, uh, it's really just um, that thing that you guys studied in third year Manac, uh, where they tell you about raising funds. So when you do an IPO, the investment bank or niche boutique firm, whoever is doing your IPO goes out and basically gets investors to commit uh, to your shares, and that's the book build. So if they say the book build was 80% subscribed, let's say you were targeting 1 billion, you got 800 million uh, committed 
guys to you know participate in your IPO, etc. Um, okay. So before I move on um, to discuss the some of the causes more in detail um, and looking at what's happening around the world um, and private equity strategies, are there any questions so far? None. Okay. Yes, can, can I ask you? Yeah. Hello, can you yeah. please raise your hand so I can see? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Mine is just a quick one. Um, what would be in, like a valid reason why a certain product would be uh, discontinued after a, a takeover or merging? Like you just said, maybe. Um, I think you made an example about Heineken and and yeah, that they just uh, they actually discontinuing Strombok. What what would be a, a valid reason for that? Because maybe if a some, it seems like the product is still selling, but after a certain takeover now, they, they discontinue it. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I think it's Strongbow. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but in this instance, they're discontinuing it because of the competition commission. Um, it's, it's, it's basically the, they're trying to make sure that you don't have an uneven share of the market. That's kind of what they're saying. So they're basically saying, you look, on average, this is the reported number of sales of Strongbow has this percentage of the cider market. Heineken, you already have, or Distel, you've got Savannah, this one, this one, this one. We add them all up. You actually then have control of the market or you can corner the market, whatever the competitions, commissions, um, actual uh, basis of basing this on is. They don't release, you know, the assumptions they use. Um, and if you just Google this, this Tell Heineken takeover, I mean, with the first article you should find will explain uh, the competition uh, commission's um, conditions. It's quite a, it's quite a few, and it's, it's straightforward things. You know, BE targets to be met, minimum procurement, and that's, it's really that. Uh, in the, the, the alcohol market, you can't sell everything, although SAB kind of does. Um, there was a massive backlog with this with this deal going through. Uh, I mean, the SAB one a few years ago because they're the largest brewery company um, by sales. Um, and they were the, I think at the time, SAB Miller, it was SAB Miller. So South African breweries, they merged years back with Millico, uh, which was a, an American company. Um, they merged... And they were third in the world at the time, Heineken second, AB InBev, which is the guys who brought us Stella and a lot of other things. Um, they eventually merged. So number one and number three were merging. Everyone was like, guys, you know, what, what, what's happening? How can you let this go? And it actually happened. Um, if you watched Billions, the show, they actually you speak about it in in one of the episodes in one of the later seasons about this merger that that alcohol thing they're talking about it's it was that merger it was based on that by far still the biggest transaction uh the jses scene it was crazy numbers and and that's really why i think distel were number four in the country um Heineken second, obviously, or Distel could have been third. Um, so when two and three merging, they 
to make it pay, you have to get rid of some products. That's really what happened. Cool. Um, there's a question. I think this person is scared to use the voice. So I'll ask it for them. Um, <laughs> I like alcohol. Eh? Um, I wanted to work for SAB when I was a, a student. Um, as an investment analyst, how far do you look into the future to be comfortable with your investment advice in that certain share to a customer? Okay, so I am not a uh, investment banking analyst or a retail uh, investment analyst, so I do not look at stocks to give predictions or recommendations in the sense of buy, sell, hold, etc. That is not um, my role, but what guys usually do is you're limited to the information that you're given. Um, most most companies will give you about three years forecast in South Africa. Uh, in the States, you get a bit more forecasts. Um, but again, bigger companies, more analysts, more uh, requirements, uh, the, the new ex stock exchange um, requirements and filing requirements are more than that of the JSE with regards to cash flows and what you're going to do with your company and that type of thing. Um, so South Africa, usually about three years, five years if you can. Um, information tends to taper off after five years. Um, so what if you look at like Oxford e Economics, um, BMI, S&P, they will give you, you know, uh, ranges for about three, four years. At around year five, they just say, so for example, CPI for South Africa, around year five, it's five and a half percent, and then that's forecast up until 2050. Um, that's usually what guys do. You don't want to predict. I also like to stay away from data that's more than five years um, because there's a lot of things that can go go wrong. And the, and the further you look, the more complicated it is you need to predict. Um, so, yeah, three to five years, I would say, is the, the forecast period. Um, there's a hand. Yes, I have another thing. Um, I just wanted to ask in terms of listings, right? Is it better uh, for a country to have more listings or less? And what's the ultimate impact of these all these companies you know delisting from GSC? So how does it affect the, the SA, SA economy? Hey, nice question. That was something I was actually going to leave for the end, but we can jump into it. Um, so there's, look, I'm of a, a, a school of thought that your, your, your stock exchange kind of essentially represents some form of economic activity in this country, right? You, the, the, the more companies there are, the bigger variety of companies there are, and um, the larger coverage that there is, which is something I'm going to touch on just now, so I don't want to give too much away about that. But the larger coverage there is, it is it it creates jobs for so many more people. One, uh, the larger your your stock exchange, the larger potential foreign direct inflows you have, because there's a greater chance for foreign investors to invest money into your into your country through your stock exchange. 
it increases the liquidity uh, for those companies, which again can help you de determine the a more accurate uh, share price, market trading conditions, uh, sources of financing for the company, and that then creates more jobs. You know, the, the bigger the listed companies, the more money is coming in, the bigger companies can grow, which is why in, in the States you can see so many millionaires, same in China, so many millionaires, billionaires, etc. It's from people creating companies. Some guy working with someone who's got a great idea, it goes public and you were there at the company, you had a 3% share. You're now suddenly a millionaire because of an IPO. Um, and you can go and do whatever with that capital. It's, you know, it's it's a, a system that can generate itself and create create wealth for for the people. Another problem then in, in our case is we don't have that culture. We don't have a culture of savings. We don't have an investment culture as South Africans. We don't, you learn about these things. And a lot of us know some of these things simply because of what we studied. There are few whose parents, you know, are um, investment savvy and know about investments and that thing. I, that's not my case. Um, who learn these things growing up. But for most of us, uh, it's it's something you learn through your job or through your friends or whatever. And that is the case for majority of South Africans. Majority of South Africans don't even know about that. So retail investing in South Africa is is very low majority of the stocks being bought on our market are institutional investors as it should be but i'm pretty sure the retail if we look at the the number of you know average people trading in their own names or via brokerage um would be low compared to you know the global average or that of a developed market um so yeah i think that's that's really why you'd want to see a a bigger a bigger um jse it's yeah i think i've may have missed the second point thumbs up oh. okay moving on um so now as I mentioned, JC, that's delisting is not just a local issue. Um, so yeah, we've got a, a company called Jazzco. Um, I remember what they did and I forgot now. Um, but Jazzco, I think they they in electrical or something. They're in some uh, type of staples. And basically what happened here is they were not, they didn't recover after COVID. Uh, they couldn't raise funds. Um, and yeah that's basically if they didn't recover their earnings were low and they they're gonna delist because it's too expensive for them to comply so the company is not going under it's not it's it's just can't keep up with the listing requirements anymore because of it shrunk as a result of covid and this points to one of a few things jazz goes outside of the top 40 so, you know, when, when a company that's outside of the big companies tries to do things, they really struggle with with regards to raising some capital. And that's one of the, the reasons. It could be poor management, whatever, um, that led to this. 
Um, but yeah, it just shows you also that for the smaller companies, staying on the JSE does not necessarily uh, currently um, provide it that much benefit um, with regards to the fees. We go then over to the States, the NASDAQ, uh, they saying that Chinese firms could pick up drastically as delisting fears ease. So this is a, a, a very uh, topical issue. Um, I'm going to recommend a documentary to, to those of you on Netflix. Um, it is something about China. I can't remember what it is called, uh, but just Google. It's a financial thing. So essentially what this documentary was doing, it, it looked at Chinese IPO. So uh, via backdoor listing. Um, and it's something you can do in South Africa as well. So basically what uh, these Chinese companies would do is they would acquire um, shell companies on like the NASDAQ or some of these alternative exchanges like the Energy Exchange or even the New York Stock Exchange. So companies that are small and meet the listing requirements, um, they would then buy those companies and essentially get a, a backdoor IPO that way and it would that um, also then mean they wouldn't have to go through the hectic audit that you need to go through to do an IPO so it's easier to get a backdoor IPO than to do a uh, initial you know IPO so what they're saying here is they expect this to pick up because there's delisting fears in the US so rising inflation um, global supply chain issues, energy issues, um, the dollar is, and is flipping strong at the moment, which is not necessarily a good thing um, for everyone. Um, so there's various things affecting the American market, similar to the South African market, minus, you know, load shedding, um, that is increasing the the likelihood of delistings and so what the chinese companies are probably going to do uh going to approach such companies and then obviously offer their money and that way they get their backdoor ipos without going through an extensive audit um that's a china hustle that's the, that is the one thank you for that um so watch that i don't want to i don't want to spoil it too much as to why um you know, that is such a big thing for the Americans. If you watch that series, you'll understand um, why they're not such big fans of that. Okay, then we move on. We see BHP bulletin. Um, so this one, it's more of them just moving across. Um, so they're just moving similar to the next one over there, uh, Harmony. So these are just, they're moving across from one, um, index to an, I mean, one exchange to another exchange, but again, delisting. And most of the reasons is costs, uh, due listings are expensive. More often than not, you have to have two offices. Um, there was a big, there was a massive uh, change from one of the mining companies back in the day um, that had a due listing. Uh, oh no, it wasn't the mining, it was Old Mutual actually. Uh, Old Mutual were delisted. They in in the London Stock Exchange they removed that one um, because of the cost of running um, that UK business. They had to have head offices 
fancy head offices in both, and you can imagine the London costs were crazy because you know execs. Um, if I'm in London or Joburg, I want to have the best. Um, so yeah, that's really uh, another reason there. Okay, so moving on. Just yeah, I'm gonna talk about some of the causes uh, for delistings, uh, focusing mainly from a South African perspective. And then looking at some of the private equity strategies uh, post delisting and for the reasons uh, that some of the private equity companies are looking at JSE companies. Okay, um, so if you just start at the top here, so again, I've been alluding to this one increased regulation from stock exchanges making it costly to comply. So remember, when you are listed, you have to comply with King. You have to comply with the Companies Act. You have to comply with et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You need to have directors. Um, you need to do external audits. There's shareholder announcements, shareholder meetings. There's those things all cost money. To write a sense announcement costs money. That little thing that goes out, those things cost money. Um, so, you know, all of that governance thing uh, as much as easy as it seems, some of these companies, they're initially just making, you know, that profit requirements. But as the economy turns and salaries increase and all of these things, uh, it does make it costly to comply. We then also look at uh, something else that I think is uh, very particularly in South Africa. It's the concentration of investment and analyst research regarding folk. Uh, reducing the focus on small and mid caps. Um, so small and mid caps, that's just mid sized companies, small sized companies in terms of their listing requirements. I'm not sure. There's no true definition. So I can't even tell you what a small and a mid cap size is. Um, everyone defines it as their own. So I would say uh, small is under 500 million uh, enterprise value or uh, market capitalization, mid cap five between 500 million and a billion and, and large caps are probably more than that, but that's still small numbers. Um, so yeah, mo a lot of the analysts and things focus on the big companies, the ones with so top 40 and maybe 10 or so companies around there, unless they are small slash mid cap specialists, which on too many in South Africa. A lot of companies don't do that. Um, for example, uh, what's this guy? Uh, the head of, of 91 Asset Management Local Equities, um, Christopher Friend, recently says he's like, I don't do small and mid caps. Uh, probably governance issues, insider trading is um, more likely and the example he made is like you'll call the manager the financial manager and they'll just tell you the comp you know like the problems they have which is insider trading more often than not um, because you can't act on the information and it can affect the, the forecast or whatever um, and that type of thing so that's that's the perception of small and mid caps and again it comes as a result of the increased cost of regulation. So some of the guys take shortcuts, they hire, uh, and you will see this uh, next year when you guys qualify and are looking for jobs. Some of these people are looking for newly qualified to be CFOs and things, and you're like, yeah, I can do it. 
I got 90% for accounting in, in undergrad. I can do this thing, you know, and, and a lot of the times you get there and you may miss things or you coerced into things. So again, be wary of that as well. Um, they're going to come out yes, give you nice titles, but paying you the same as your friends with not the nice titles, um, with increased responsibility. And, and that's some of the shortcuts that guys take. Then, because of a, this reduced market coverage, it results in reduced liquidity of shares and thus reducing the share price. So it's, it's one of those things at tandem. Um, you guys have covered easy equities before. You go to easy equities. Um, this is one way to, to determine liquidity. Um, you look at the bid spread. So right, the, the spread between what, what they will sell you the share at and versus what they will buy the share to you from. So they always buy it cheaper than what they will sell it to you for. The greater that gap, as a percentage, the lower the liquidity of a share. The lower that gap, the greater the liquidity of that share. Um, and if you go look at the smaller caps, you'll notice that gap on easy equities is bigger. And the reason being, it's not being traded as often. Right? Easy equities, um, you, it's, a, it's just a, like a brokerage, essentially. And you're buying fractional share ownerships. Um, there's a whole lot of another thing there. Okay, if we then look at another thing, it's increased understanding and appetite for alternative investments. So again, this is an industry that's growing private equity in South Africa. Um, they more often than not, when the fund does well, they, they, they will, well, private equity as an asset class has higher expected, expected returns, but the risk is higher. You, you, you know CAPM. Um, so you understand the inputs, the higher the risk, the higher the expected return. Um, so that's, you know, it's increasing. Uh, private debt is not a thing yet really in South Africa. Uh, it's still a niche product, but it's growing. Um, there are a few more private equity companies venturing into private debt. Um, and just to pause on this, because I've been mentioning it quite a bit, private debt essentially is private equity except that you're giving debt. So you're a private lender. Um, so as a private equity fund, you just give out loans and how these loans will then obviously be at higher interest rates than what you would get at a bank because they're assuming more risk. Um, but they they can secure them. They can have mez kickers, mezzanine kickers, where if you achieve certain things or you don't achieve certain things, the interest rate goes up or down. Uh, they can get equity participation, etc. That's private debt. Um, property and infrastructure funds, and obviously with a big push um, by government, the renewable energies. Um, so that appetite and those investments are increasing in South Africa, um, given the risk, given the size of the JSE. I mean, you invest in any top 40 fund, they are going to, I'm going to tell you now, they're going to have empty in. They all, all of them, except maybe one or two, are going to have NASPERS and PROCESS. And they're probably going to have, a, they all going to have a bank. Um, and they will tell you why they like Capitec, First Rand, Old Mutual, Standard Bank, or APSA. They'll all have a bank. Um, and that's, you know, that's really the, how everyone, kind of invests 
unless you have a segregated mandate. And like I, and that's what I'm saying. There's there's no real retail coverage outside of the top 40. Um, if I had to ask any of us here to name 40 listed companies, I think we're going to struggle to come to 40 together. Um, so imagine the naming companies outside of that top 40. As a, unless you, you know, focusing on a specific industry or you're covering those types of stocks. Most people don't know about these companies outside of the top 40 um, that are listed that they could potentially invest in. Sometimes when I'm bored, I'll go on easy equities or whatever and just look at random companies and just be like, oh, what do you do? Oh, you do this? You list it? Wow. Okay, cool. Um, and I mean, that just shows because there's no coverage. And as a retail investor, you wouldn't know. So what are you probably going to do? You're going to invest in what? what's happening on Twitter, the WhatsApp stories, etc., the news you're seeing, or whatever your crypto friend is trying to get you to buy into, those are the things you're going to probably invest into, right? And even if you want to invest into companies outside of it, there's no research on it. There's no analyst coverage. And I'm speaking as an analyst. Like, there's none. I've got access to greater research than most people do because I've got Bloomberg, I can go search any company I wanted to if I wanted to use it. And you still can't find research on these companies. So nobody's not, there aren't even people covering it. So even me as a sophisticated retail customer who's got access to things and I want to go and look for some mid caps and look at ratios and compare them to bigger companies and just go and find someone's work and not have to do it myself, I can't. I can't go find that analyst report or paper or newspaper article. It's not there. So that's one of the issues. But if I want MTN, oh, I'll find thousands of think pieces on what MTN share price should be. Um, and again, as mentioned, the culture and savings and financial education in South Africa, we have a terrible financial education in South Africa. Um, we don't save. Um, we had our company recently changed uh, pension pension funds and they were presenting to us and they were telling us that 40% um, of their customers have uh, sufficient retirement savings or will meet their retirement goal. 60% don't. And that's six, the, of the people that has with them. And that, again, insurance in South Africa, it's, it's very low. Very low. We don't, we don't insure. You can ask your friends how many of them lose their phones, their iPhones get stolen at Groove, and then they're stressing because it's not insured. Uh, cars getting stolen, random fact. Um, I did this job, this, this in 2018, um, so I had to value... Uh, an insurance app. So those of you who have insurance with Liberty, they've got an, an app and it's a automated, it's a bot. It's like a chat bot. So I did the valuation of that when Standard Bank bought that uh, from, from Liberty. So as part of that, I did some research, industry research into insurance in South Africa, specifically uh, mobile, I mean vehicle insurance, because they initially launched with just vehicle insurance. 
2018, at the time, the stats were uh, that 35% of South Africans have vehicle insurance. Oh no, sorry, 35% of the cars on the roads. That includes corporate fleets, right? Avis, your company cars, all of those things. 35% of the cars on the road are insured, meaning there's a one in third chance that if you bump someone or somebody bumps you, they're not insured. And if that's how we think about car insurance, can you imagine what we think about insurance and savings and all of these things as South Africans? Uh, now nah, I've got all the insurances. I don't play with that game. I, I, I hate losing money too much. Um, so please, guys, insure yourselves. I bumped the Mercedes in January last year. I was quoted almost 30000 to fix it. I spent 900 rand which was for the quote for the guy. And that was it. My insurance handled it. Imagine 30K after having a December, the 3rd of January, I bumped that car. I'll never forget that day. The 3rd of January. That means I was supposed to part with 30K. I didn't. My insurance did. So please, um, as some extra financial savings, get insurance and make and look after yourself. And then lastly, if you look at the corporate market bond, so there's bonds trading on the JC that are issued by companies. Again, also outside of the top 40, very, very illiquid. And that's why companies like Jasco struggle to raise um, funding to keep their business afloat. Okay, um, before I move on to private equity strategies, uh, are there any questions on uh, causes for delistings? or insights. No, okay. So moving on to um, the private equity strategy. So um, this is just basically what private equities companies uh, their potential strategies would be when they take a company private. So they delist this company like Old Mutual did. They delisted this company. How are they going to unlock value um, by delisting this company? Okay, so as mentioned, there's about 40 billion um, dry powder. So that's quite a bit. Um, that can make a sizable dent into, into um, uh, the JC. I mean, if OMPE bought Long for Life for about, I think it was about two and a half billion, and they own three, four established companies. I mean, Sportsman's Warehouse, we all know Sportsman's Warehouse. It's Sportsman's Warehouse, Total Sports, and maybe Game or whatever. We're going to go for if you want sports stuff. Um, right. So, if we take that into consideration, there's probably about 10, 20 companies that could delist just if private equity turned their eyes to that. We then go uh, looking at the market capitalization. Oh, I didn't finish that. Um, basically, so what I wanted to do there was look at the total size of small and mid caps, but there's no there's no term for it, so I was going to have to do define that and that was yeah there's no nothing easy to do um so sorry um so yeah what they would do is the first one is take private so you take it private you would run it as a company 
um, fix it, fix some of these things, and then you will then IPO uh, a few years later when you meet the requirements again. Okay, that's the, the, the one of the most straightforward ones. Uh, the next one uh, is called restructuring. Um, so again, quite similar uh, to that, and I think that is probably one of the strategies uh, a lot of the companies do, um, especially like in investment holdings, um, where you may not like one or two of the companies in the thing, but you have to buy them all, so you'll take them. So what you'll do is you'll go in there, you'll for example, maybe restructure, and that could be taking out, for example, a company structure. Maybe you have a management company in between, you take that out, or you bring in a management company somewhere. It could be merging uh, two divisions or creating new divisions. It doesn't necessarily always mean making the company smaller or ripping apart. It could also sometimes mean adding on pieces or just shuffling around pieces. The next one, uh, and this is what we call in a MBO, uh, management buyout. And this is where management um, essentially then uh, raises private capital um, from basically like private equity companies, etc., and then buy out the owners of the company. And they then hold majority ownership. The private equity company sometimes keeps a stake um, because they obviously wouldn't have helped these guys if they didn't believe they could make some money. Um, the next one is the one that's frowned upon uh, mostly, and this is called asset stripping. Um, and it's as the name says, you basically go in, you see what you can sell, and you sell it. You strip. So usually what happens is where uh, it can happen in, in, in companies where uh, and this is actually a big thing in the States. Um, so in the States, um, what happened over the last few years, um, a lot of private equity companies, or there was actually one that's quite famous for it, were targeting a lot of um, small companies that like newspapers, radio stations, uh, etc., that uh, owned like community uh, businesses like this that would own the buildings that they live in. So it's community like old heritage type of buildings um, in sought after areas, etc., like that. So what these guys would go in, they would buy these uh, companies and get rid of the newspaper operation. So, oh, you're a 150 year old newspaper that caters to the small town of 5,000 people. Bye bye. Boom. You no longer exist sell the property because the property is actually worth more than the newspaper business itself. Like they were vultures. Um, so that's, that's you know, asset stripping, uh, essentially. Um, it's one of the, you know, it's like a, what's that thing in cricket where you pretend to bowl and then you, you stump the person out, the man cat. It's legal, but it's frowned upon. Um, then we've got reorganize and relist. So yeah, that's what I've mentioned. So you take the company, you change the organization structure, you add more products, whatever you do, you, you essentially re-strategize, you grow the company again, and then you relist in a few years um, and make your money. Um, then another one that's common is build and sell. 
Um, so yeah, you build a company up and then you sell it uh, probably to its competitor or to a bigger company in that industry. And then the last one, which is also uh, something that private equity companies don't like doing, is selling to another fund. So you sell your company to another private equity company. And that's kind of like a admission of defeat because it's like you couldn't execute your strategy. Now I'm giving it to another private equity fund to see if they can get it right. Um, and obviously if that other private equity fund gets it right and makes more money than you did of that business, it's, you know, it's one of those unofficial bragging rights in the industry. Um, and potentially official bragging right because uh, there's the deal makers awards which is a big thing in in you know private equity investment banking etc who's got the biggest deal this year okay then looking at uh why uh you know there's this attractiveness to private equity uh, companies from these jsc companies one we've got great entrepreneurs We've got a lot of problems in South Africa, like the government can't solve anything and private enterprise has had to step in and literally solve everything. You know, I was driving the other day, there was a spot hole I know that I, I know that I always had to avoid and then it wasn't there. And why wasn't there? Because Discovery Insure covered the pothole and then they put their their pain sign there. So we all know that discovery is the reason this bottle got fixed. I was coming home from uh, picking up my partner at work. There was no lights. Guess who was helping me? Those outsurance guys standing at the robots, moving the things. You know, so we've got quite a lot of great entrepreneurs in South Africa. And you can see this in, in global enterprise. You'll randomly hear a story about a company and whatever, and then there's somehow a South African involved in that company. If you look at, uh, for example, the biggest private equity fund in the world, Sequoia Capital, uh, they appointed a South African as their head. Um, they, and those are the guys, I, can't, I think they invested in Facebook and Twitter, a lot of these big tech stocks before they blew up. Um, so yeah, we've got great entrepreneurs. Um, uh, there's a lot of guys running some excellent businesses that aren't listed as well. Um, and because of our problems, a lot of our, our entrepreneurs are quite innovative. Uh, you look at the guys like Pineapple Insurance, for example. I know people are complaining about them now that their prices are a bit higher, but I mean, they, they're being commercialized. But I mean, that, that thing of take a picture, on things on the go, we've got things like Stash, which I'll cover later, Easy Equities, even the fact that you can transfer, a, you know, e-wallets and these types of things, it's crazy. It's things that they haven't even developed overseas yet in, in developed markets like the States and, and um, the UK, you know, it's random things like this. Um, so we've got really great entrepreneurs in South Africa, um, great innovation, uh, obviously, as a result of uh, the circumstances that we, we face. Then, um, as a result, as I mentioned, the lack of coverage, the lack of liquidity, a lot of companies are trading below their intrinsic value. 
uh, Rendani covered it when he looked at investment holding companies. Um, you can see a lot of companies are actually trading at a discount. So it's cheap for companies or uh, private equity companies who have access to a large amount of capital to go and you know buy out companies or buy a large enough stake that they can take them private. Then uh, again, there's lack of access to financing, um, be it from banks or you know by raising bonds or other types of instruments, be it options, warrants, whatever. There's just um, not that much liquidity in the market outside of certain uh, things. And that is also why some of these companies are struggling and what would make them more attractive. Because you can come, if you've got a healthy balance sheet, you can come and essentially, you know, uh, take them private. Again, access to a larger network. So if we look at, um, if I think about what was done recently, there was a company that was sold, uh, I think it was, Oh, I can't get in the company now, but Mr. Price bought them. RMB bought this company. For the life of me, I don't know why it's it's this company is eluding me. Um, but RMB bought this company. Oh, it's Studio 88. Studio 88. Um, so RMB, you know, Studio 88, and that step up is the subsidiary. They all under the same tree. So that brand RMB bought years ago. Uh, they then built this company, you know, bought it up, and now Mr. Price is buying it. Mr. Price's home also actually bought a, a, a big company, I think it was last year or two years ago, called Yappy Chef. If you live around Midrand you, and Santon, you'll see there are Yappy Chef shops in Santon and Mall of Africa selling, ex, you know, high-end um, homeware uh, type of thing. Um, so that was Mr. Price essentially purchasing these smaller companies. Now these companies have got access to larger network, they've got access to financing, and they've got access to bigger marketing teams, for example. And then lastly is there is greater possibility of returns than traditional returns. I worked on, I've had uh, access um, to quite a few private equity funds, um, financial performances uh, uh, due to my job, um, my previous job and my current job actually. Um, and the returns that they generate are much better than what you would have gotten had you invested those that money in the JSE, for example, the top 40. Um, and that's really one of the reasons also why um, alternative investments, there's been an increase in alternative investments. Um, another random alternative investment uh, that's actually quite quite popular um, is bags. Uh, so those of you who like rap music, you'll hear Party B, Beyonce, and talk about Birkins. Those are actually investment stocks. You can just do a quick Google on them and they, they'll buy them for like $10,000, keep them two years later, they sell them for $60,000. And that's just the, could be like the price appreciation of the bag, not necessarily that you're buying Beyonce's Birkin. Um, so, and wine farms, etc. cetera. Uh, so all of these things are, you know, people are coming, being creative with how they can create 
access to new markets and new types of security types and you know with with um gen z and i guess millennials etc it's 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 nice to know you can do some things different than stocks and you know things that you can kind of understand more that are more layman than what is the sharp ratio of the stock trading versus the price earnings ratio blah 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 um so yeah all of these things are playing a role in why uh, exchanges and alternative assets are becoming more popular etc yeah i think that then brings us to the q a Okay, what are your thoughts? Hey guys, I don't, I, I, I'm gonna pick someone. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be like your old school lecturer. Uh, when they're giving you that four hour accounting class on a Friday and nobody wants to answer. We all wanna go home. Um, so I'm gonna pick someone. Uh, there was someone who was reacting quite a bit while I was presenting. Uh, so Shumani, I think it is, is in. I saw quite a few laughing emojis coming from your thing, so you can give us your first your thoughts. Uh, saved by happy. Hi, Marian. Thanks for this. I had a quick question. Uh, I've always wondered why you like taking you back to the start of your presentation. Why would multinationals have? Uh, listed sort of like local subsidiaries that are necessarily wholly owned um, and not necessarily you know selling to anyone in the public i've always had that question i'm not sure if it makes sense those those two listed those listed subsidiaries for example aren't necessarily wholly owned they'll have probably control I think there's, remember there's IFRS 10. Um, so you don't have to yeah. own everything to to have control. So, and I think one of the examples you could use is, uh, was APSA back in the day uh, when they were still called Barclays. Um, Barclays was, it was trading. There was a percentage of free float available. Um, and then it, it, it does, it can be as little as 20%, 10%, whatever. Um, but you can't, they can't be restricted shares. So why they would do that? Um, it's for access to funding. Um, it could be requirements uh, from the competition commission or ministerial approvals or license approvals. That can be one of the conditions. Um, and it can also be just for exposure for the brand in that, com in that country. Um, yeah. And essentially continent. So that's what Barclays was uh, they listed here but it was remember this barclays africa that was for them to get you know that was their brand way of trying to expand into africa via apsa uh which failed um and yeah that that really was their vision behind that um same with 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 massmart and and um what was it walmart a similar thing uh, I think that was one of the, the requirements, but now they're buying out the shareholders, taking that private. 
yeah yeah thanks for that it makes it makes sense then my last question was just around how does this interface with you know the bee especially in the south african context because i think i've seen some entities where they'll delist and quickly get a be partner um and i'm not sure what the motive behind that is and if you know that also has some pressures to to entities to then delist yeah it can it can be again that comes through as um you know one of the the when I was speaking about regulation, so some industries and some requirements, you may have to keep up certain PE scores um, in order to, you know, um, get certain business, etc. So government doesn't deal with PE scores lower than whatever it is. I think level two or level one. I'm not sure, but you have to have a certain PE score for that. And then it also, it's just for for some people it's uh, it's like a gimmicking tool uh to be honest because you can get a be score of level one and there's only like 10 percent ownership by just hiring yeah. you know all your staff below a certain level and blah 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 so the whole b thing it's it can be a, a limitation you'll get some people who will say oh but i don't want to this listing requirements, 30% of my company must be owned by blacks or whatever. Yeah, people will use it as excuses. To be honest, those ones who use BE as an excuse to not list or to invest in South Africa have subtle undertones of racism for me um, because mm -hmm. then they don't mm -hmm. truly actually understand. Because there are a lot of companies that I would classify as white-owned, white companies that have level one BE scores because they know how to play the game. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but thanks for your insights. Yeah, no problem. And uh, there's a question in the chat box as well. Um, so I do, I think, the status. Yes, 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 yes. Um, definitely. So the first part of your question is, does the economy uh, affect um, yes, it definitely does. Um, if we had to go look at the number um, of listed companies across the globe, whenever there's a massive recession or economic shock, so 2008 financial crisis, we would have seen a large number, a greater number of, of delistings than anything else. Same as in 2020, uh, COVID. So if you look at 2020, the JSE lost a lot of its share market everywhere, actually. Every, most companies, um, other than like your Zooms and your certain internet companies, etc., lost a lot of value um, around March 2020 um, as a result of COVID. Um, so, yes, economy um, is always, it always uh, affects um, listing the number of listed companies as well another thing about why you know if we think if we take it back around 1998 ish south africa was still also was it was still booming with regards to the mandela fever um you know we were still doing quite positive growth the rand was strong escom was one of the best companies in the world they will will always be reminded um and 
private equity, for example, was really only starting to take off around then. I think Ethos Capital, um, Old Mutual, private equity, Vantage, those guys really only started coming up around then, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and then we had, we were, like I said, we were doing well growth. And then 2002, up until then, and then just, I would say probably around, yeah, we started seeing problems around, I think, 2005-ish, 07, and then load shedding, and then we had the Gupta era, and then the financial crisis. So, yeah, that all of those things impact uh, the number of business, and, and it also affects um, business sentiment. Um, a lot of the outlook is negative for South Africa. Corruption is a, a massive issue. And remember, these things affect us as well. I mean, if people say if if ESCOM gets downgraded to junk or whatever, well, these junk, their bonds are junk. Nobody's going to be giving ESCOM money. So ESCOM can't go and get money overseas to help us with the problems here, which in turn means it goes to the taxpayer. So politics has an effect. Um, it has an effect on, on the JSE as well. We have a massive, massive, massive issue now where we're going to be we're going to be grey listed essentially by the financial FATF. So basically, it's some global association that watches money laundering and stuff. We're going to be added to the grey list, which means we are a safe haven for terrorists. You would think with our complicated banking systems, it would be harder uh, for terrorists to launder money and stuff in here, but actually it's quite easy. I mean, there's also things like e-wallets and, and these things. Um, so yeah, uh, when if this happens, it's going to make it harder for us to get money into South Africa uh, for from foreign uh, investors. So you know how they allocate offshore when they say, yeah, I'm taking money offshore to emerging markets. That's that's us, we the emerging markets. Less money is going to flow to South Africa. And again, probably more delistings uh, on the JSE. JSE is going to probably get smaller. Um, and it's also going to be harder for us to invest offshore because you need it's going to be harder for you to prove that your money isn't tainted if we get added to that list. So politics and all of these things have massive ramifications on on uh, investments in the, the financial capital markets, as, as they call it. OK, um, oh, and when it comes to to listing and delisting, quite a few companies have, have uh, mentioned load shedding and COVID, etc., as as one of the issues. Um, so yeah, politics affects them. The next question: uh, fashionable index or any negative effects? This is going to be. Traders. So you're talking about index trading. Um, doesn't it negatively affect? Yes. To, and and that is that is where I was talking about um, the concentration on the top 40. Um, and so a lot of um, asset managers, uh, if they have an SA equity type of thing, 
the benchmark is probably going to be the SWIX or the CAP SWIX or the FTSE top, uh, top 40. Um, so because of that, they trading on these indexes, um, they are essentially, they, they buying shares into these companies. And as a result, they're not focusing on some of the other outlying companies. And again, that, that comes to that concentration issue. So, but on the other hand, um, indexes play a very important role um, in financial management and investment management in that they allow us to, to uh, as investors, uh, a benchmark. So, you know, if somebody says their strategy is to target the top listed companies and they're going to make certain selections and changes to, to get an alpha, um, the benchmark helps you to just you know, to establish, i.e., what is the baseline risk, you know, for this thing. So getting the standard deviation of that benchmark, you can see what the risk is um, for the return, um, and you can and therefore use it to compare. Or you can compare, you know, um, to, to asset managers who have the same strategy, uh, what can be the attribution for the differences in returns, and it could be the composition. One has slightly more in MTN, one's got um, British American tobacco, etc., uh, etc. Et um, so yes, indexes, I do believe they, they feed into that concentration, um, but at the same time, we can't get rid of indexes or index tracking um, because, um, you know, they there's, yeah, they, they offer way more benefits than cons. Let me just put it that way. Okay, uh, when the company lists, do they buy out the shareholders? Uh, no, okay, so um, what usually happens would be uh, if it's a buyout. So in the case of Loan for Life, you would have gotten the, the value per share um, that it was offered. So I think long for life, it was a, a, a premium of about almost 20% uh, to the share price that Old Mutual paid, and you would have gotten that into your account, and your shares would have been gone. Um, whereas if the company, you know, ceases to trade because of business rescue, as an ordinary shareholder, you're getting the last, if there is anything, and chances are there won't be anything, and it also takes quite a long time for a business rescue to wind up, um, which is another topic um, we could potentially talk about on another day. Um, but yeah, um, business rescue. Uh, let's just put it this way. Business rescue practitioners have no incentive to wrap it up quickly, fastly, and for the benefit of shareholders. There's no, there's a massive conflict there. Um, that I do not want to get into. Yeah, how does one make money from listing their company? My understanding is the money will be for business. Okay, so IPOs, book builds, etc. Um, remember now the company is going to have shares. There's going to be an authorized number of shares. So let's just, for simple sake, we're going to use a hundred thousand. You, Dumisani are the owner um, and you are a key part. You're not just the guy who came up with money. You lead strategy, development, blah, blah, blah. You are Mark Zuckerberg, my friend. 
you get 55% of the shares, or rather, let's say you get 60% of the shares um, of this company, right? 60%. Let's just say you put in, to make it simple, you put in uh, one rand a share, right? Um, or 10 rand a share. So you, 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 you put in that. Then you've got 60%. Eight years ago, companies grown, brilliant. You lost on the JSE. Uh, you've contributed, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, you IPO and the shares are now worth, let's give you a nice number. The shares are now worth 200 rand a share. You essentially made 20x on your initial cap capital. You already boom. So now let's just say you've got, what was it? Did we say you've got 60,000 shares? Um, Let's do quick maths here. You have now got 1.2 million, 1.2 billion, whatever. Let's just make it 1.2 billion. That's what your shares are worth, right? Your shares are now worth 1.2 billion. You can sell some of your shares to get immediate cash, or you can leverage your shares, which is what Elon Musk does. Uh, he doesn't, and another person, Another long story. He's not as great as he seems. Let's just put it that way. Um, he doesn't use, uh, he doesn't have a lot of cash, but he's a billionaire. He loves this fancy life. He's got yachts, women, blah, blah, blah. Well, he takes out loans. And if you watched um, Steinist or started watching, that is something Marcus Euster also used to do. He used to leverage his personal shares, go to investment banks, Hey, my chum, what's up? I got Steinhoff shares. Borrow me 100 million. Here you go. You're going to have Steinhoff shares. Oh, there you go, Marcus. Marcus go buys that fancy house in Hermanus. Buys himself 50 horses. Spends it on blondes in Stellenbosch. Boom. What happens? Oh, things are going well. Things are going well. Marcus has got the cash. Right? Steinhoff blows up. Sanlam comes. Hey, Marcus. Oh, well, they have no claim against him because the shares are now worth nothing. And that's really how you make your money from IPO. So you have your shares, you, you can either leverage it um, as security or sell it, get the immediate cash. And that's basically how you make money from IPOs. Okay, any other questions? Okay, there's a hand. Um, I, uh, okay, can, you, can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, I just want to ask, um, yeah, South Africa currently the in, un, unemployment rate is quite very high. Um, what is your opinion in terms of um, uh, just looking at the listed entities and the private uh, investment? What do you think is more effective in terms of uh, creating employment? Uh, I know there was um, uh, this tax regime, uh, the Section 12J, venture capital companies. I don't know how, um, if you have any Bond. information about uh, I had an opportunity to audit some of them, um, the 12J companies. Uh, you know, 
So what I realized it um, there was a theme. At some point, they started um, not investing in, in high risk companies, uh, which is the companies that actually employ more people and and um, uh, what do you call and uh, I mean creating jobs. That was the main purpose actually of Tobia. But what I realized it one of these companies we audit. I'm not going to say the name. They started buying property. Um, you know, there wasn't really a creation of employment. Initially, they had, they were investing in companies where they actually do their repairs and maintenance, and there was like production actually happening, the farms and all. And then it's all of a sudden they started switching to properties where they do their, um, uh, forgot what you call this, but it's just like more like a, a, a like a hotel type of thing because they just tried to. So I, I, I was not surprised when actually SARS didn't extend this uh, 12J when it ended, when the sunset close was June. And to me, it really made sense. So I don't know private equity and the listed who really can help solve this unemployment property because on the JSE for my opinion is People can buy shares, I mean, from ShopRite, buy shares, I mean, whatever that liquidity is high and they buy and sell, but it doesn't really create job, I mean, on the ground. ShopRite is just going to have 10 people employed, unless if they really build more shops and, and all stuff like that. But to me, I feel like the JSE, that whole market is just a matter of investors buying shares and sell, buy shares, I mean, if there is no, uh, like, um, if they don't build or open new stores, I'm just looking at the retail. There isn't really, there is re there is no creation of employment, you know. So I I'm just thinking from your your understanding, what what do you think can really solve this problem of unemployment, the private or these listed companies? Neither. The South African government. That is who needs to solve. This thing of private thing needs to stop. And I'm getting political, but it needs to stop. We, 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 we keep that's, that's, and that is a problem because we have so little faith in our government that the first thing is which company is going to save us. And, and that's the problem in South Africa. And I was alluding to this and I will make another example. South Africa, they asked the minister, you can go Google this thing. Uh, he was complaining about these things, uh, the cost of living as a minister, he was complaining. And he was saying, we, uh, Ramaphosa shut it down now, but he was saying, we must get this free electricity, blah, blah, blah. And his complaint was, I pay over 10 tau on medical aid. That was, he was like, oh my word, I must still pay 10 tau for medical aid. And the presenter rightfully asked him, but why don't you go to public hospitals? And he laughed. A South African minister laughed when they asked him, why don't you just go to public hospitals? That's what it should be. That's, that's who should be creating jobs. That's who should be creating proper health infrastructure. That's who should be giving us quality education, not Kuro. Why must I send my child to Kuro? When I'm already paying, if I make over a million, 45% of my tax to the government, 
and then paying the highest sin tax on bottle alcohols outside of the Arab states. We pay 55, 55% of what you pay for your Jameson is taxes to the South African government. 55%. You are paying taxes to the government. Various taxes coming all through, coming through you. You could be drinking Jameson for 200 rand if they reduce the tax rate on sin taxes and other things. But no. And then they will say, yeah, you're going crit to critically over by increasing the alcohol. You're going to make hospitals worse. There are no hospitals to make worse. I need medical aid so I can get taken to life health care. There are more life health cares than there are government hospitals in the country. School, government, insurance. Oh, let's forget private security. JSE listed company Investec increased the allocation to their directors for private security 200,000 pounds. That's about 4 million rand. So that if you are director at JSE, I mean at uh, Investec, you get 4 million on private security paid by the shareholders. That's, that's the state of security in this company. And that's what, you know, the rich, the ultra rich are living. So my question is, it's government. That's the answer. It's not private. It's, it's probably going to be private. It's the only people generating jobs in this country is the private sector. And the, as you rightfully mentioned, the JSC, yes, it creates value and it's not necessarily there for expanding businesses. And the, 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 the increased capital doesn't necessarily flow down to the workers. Um, but it does help with regards to expanding. If you want to expand, build more businesses, build more shops, etc. And you can't get loans, etc. The best way is potentially to then raise equity as our alternative source. So, uh, great question, my friend. But the answer is the South African government for everything. We're paying too much in this country and we're too complacent to the fact where we ask each other, What's your favorite load shedding schedule? <laughs> Two years from now, we're going to be like, oh, I prefer when I have half day in the morning than half day at night. That's what we're going to say two years from now if we don't stop on this. Yeah. So just something now. So what's your opinion now if then we introduce text on the, sh on, on the shares? So you want to no, we we can't now. We, we you can tax. Remember the taxing comes down to what's that case causal. Is it do you, is it your job? If it's a hobby, you can't tax me on my hobby. Yeah, no, my my thing is um to me like that linking to that twelve J. So only mm. the rich actually benefited from that. Oh yes, they the rich where, people benefit. Where they from that. they get a huge deduction. I can tell you from the names and then the, the people that I saw when we do the audit it was just the big guys and and what they do is they just get those deductions they go buy shares at JSE I don't know some of them are holding shares for 40 years now um, if you're gonna go buy a building today you're gonna pay all those municipal rates and all stuff I mean it's an asset but you pay annual rates and all stuff like that I like someone who is have I don't know five billion on 
shares, ShopRite, they only get tags when they actually sell. Yeah. But for them holding that property for many years, I mean, holding those shares for many years, they pay nothing. And um, only when they sell, that's where we come. But if you look at it, how many poor people actually own shares? So it's just only the rich people uh, that will buy shares. I'm not saying poor can't buy, but I mean, we need to pay rent. <laughs> you need to buy electricity with that money. We can't afford to buy these shares and hold for, for quite long, you know. So what I'm saying is, how about now the government come with these tax on those shares? I know people will say it will maybe uh, change the investors, <laughs> but Emmanuel, what's the point now of just having all these billions sitting and in oh. any time they can sell it and I don't know, go buy it to China or wherever, any stock market that, that suit them? Respectfully, I do not want to give the South African government any more tax. I am not getting a return on my investment. I am not. So if there's anything or tax, I am not a fan of it. If, if it's tax, i.e. giving more tax to the government. I am for a wealth tax. For example, the rich should pay more tax. Um, I plan to be the rich and I still plan to give more tax. But the people in charge of it are not good leaders. They're not have no great performance record um, and you can get fired from one post and then get reallocated to another so you know until we can really change uh, things it, it, it all comes down to our government guys it really does and I'm not gonna blame any specific political party because government is made up of variety of people with variety of political beliefs um, and, and obviously, we need to acknowledge our past in, in the impact that it's played. But at some point, our leaders have to, you know, uh, take ownership and, and say, yeah, I failed you guys. Because that's honestly what it is. All of our problems, all of it stems to them. ESCOM, it's not Zuma's fault. It's actually Tabum Baker's fault. Uh, he tried to privatize ESCOM in 2001, I think it was. He failed. And as a result, we lost a lot of engineers and we weren't building because we stopped building. He didn't want um, government to pay for for uh, increasing the capacity in the country. He thought uh, companies, large companies, um, as their duty to South Africa and as some form of re reparations, essentially, should help and assist in increasing the electrical capacity in South Africa. And that that's you know that was a decision made 20 years ago. Um, that's crippling us now, crippling us. All of these things would have cost half, a quarter of what they're costing us now if Tabumbeki just bloody built the power stations. So, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't matter what your question is, I'll find a way to blame our government, is what I'm trying to say. Okay, cool, we're running out of time. Um, so let me just go to in the academic. So essentially what I've done here um, is I said, well, if I was setting your APC uh, and this was my my theme, you know, uh, delistings, or my theme is, say for example, the Heineken 
uh, acquisition or the mass mart delisting. One of these delistings that's happening, we can be either one of those industries. These are the topics I would try to test you on um, from an APC level. So obviously I'm going to start with the best subjects, which is math and MANAC or math. Um, so financial management, you'd look at potentially some, sorry, stakeholder theory. Um, you could argue they could tell you about the person that's acquiring, are they an activist shareholder, hostile takeover, blah, blah, blah. Something I've been looting to quite a bit, sources of financing, you can discuss pros, cons, evaluate the options um, from which one is the cheapest, etc. Or if they really want to be fancy, does it break your whack? Okay, and another one could be valuation of the company and goodwill, and or it could be discussing this thing. So remember, all of these things, it could be, if it's a calculation, it could just be they present you with one and then you have to critique it. So you need to understand what a, a good valuation looks like. That's very key um, in these things. Um, again, you could then discuss the, the types of take private strategy. So it could be leverage buyout, private investment. Again, those private equities and the exit strategies discussions, pros, cons, etc. You could talk about that. Okay, we then look at SRM. There could be again something's most likely key risks, opportunities, discuss the qualitative uh, factors. There could be Porter's five forces um, of acquiring the business. You could then look at synergy, valuing synergy, what type of synergistic benefits there are, uh, corporate governance. The, what are the factors you need to consider? You know, that classic vague one. Uh, they could talk about listing requirements. You could have to do some industry analysis, for example. Um, it's something I always did in my APC preps. Always try to understand the industry that you're dealing with. Um, it just makes it so much easier uh, when the curveballs come. So know what's happening in the news. So it's one of the things I'll, why I'm uh, a fan of, of, of what EPC are doing for you guys. Um, you know, getting to, to, to see what's happening in the market. Again, partner selection, uh, who are you going to do business with, that type of thing. Then from management accounting, uh, this is one of those things, which companies are you going to keep costs? So again, you could have to do some high level contribution analysis, consider the other factors. For example, um, some, you know, uh, businesses are synergy type of businesses, right? Um, you can't sell your soda company because you have a pizza business. And when people buy your pizza, they always buy your cool drink. You know, something like that. Um, NPC, so net present cost, lease versus buying, you know, IFRS 17 is always topical, uh, relevant costing, and then cost allocation. We then go look at the three other more boring subjects. Um, and in this way, they're not, they're not sorted in order of boringness, otherwise accounting would be lost. Um, auditing and ethics, again, new company, Selection of new auditors, opening audit, opening audit balance, opening balances, key balances, etc. How would you test them? Uh, risk assessment of certain key accounts and balances. So you know that whole risk assessment thing. Designing procedures, materiality testing, 
insider trading from an ethics point of view. You the friend, you know this thing is going to happen, blah, blah, blah. Uh, discussion of retrenchment of staff uh, yeah. could also be something. And then ESG discussions, um, political, social responsibility, blah, blah, blah. Those types of things can come in there. Then uh, accounting, business combinations, if risking, fair value, depreciation. You guys can read these things, you know, all the boring stuff we were starting. Uh, then uh, tax. Uh, again, tax implications of the different sources of financing. They like that thing, that debt relief, debt, all of those things. Uh, discussing of the tax base of the assets that you acquired. Um, um, cool. Any questions on my hypothetical question before we... Uh, jump into what's happening in the news. No, cool. It's hypothetical, so don't think too much about it. Cool. Um, so in the news, um, so there's quite a quite a few um, pages here that I've uh, articles I've clipped, and uh, they all interesting for their various reasons. So I'll go through them. Uh, the first one we've got to be uh, Sun International's expanding Sun City. Yay! Um, Sun City's expanding. Um, so the re and it's not just because I like Sun City that I I put this one here. Um, tourism uh, was the hardest, probably the hardest hit industry by COVID. Um, and there's another article coming up where I'll uh, explain why this is this is a positive news. So basically what this is saying to us is uh, Sun International sees some optimism uh, in the future. Remember this, because they're spending money now, this thing's going to take a while to build. So what they're basically saying is in about two or three years, we should expect hopefully the tourism industry to rebound. Um, one of the issues hitting the tourism industry now, obviously, as you guys were mentioning, um, is the high cost of living. You know, things are increasing, you have money. I'm not going to save it. I'm not going to do it. I need to live. So holidays and those things are obviously going to take a backseat. But they expect this to come in the future. So they're starting to build now. And what they're building is they're building uh, villas, like family villas, four, three, four bedrooms in like a little um, village, you can call it. They're adding gyms. They're adding other things to their existing properties. So it's 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 quite a... Uh, how can I put this optimistic view uh, from Sun International? So that's that's some positivity there. They, you know, that the, the largest hotel company in the country uh, has some optimism. To go over to the right here, uh, Capitec is venturing into life insurance. So they've been approved for a life insurance business. Uh, this is something that's been happening since Discovery. I would I would credit Discovery as the big uh, proponents for this all-encompassing financial services firm. Uh, it started with them getting their bank license. And now look at the banks. The banks are all trying to do medical aid or life insurance or short-term insurance to try and get uh, more customers as well as get more data. This is one of the key things here, and I think it's data mining. 
which is why one of the reasons I don't have everything with discovery. Uh, so if you think about if you the discovery product, you have your vehicle with them, you bank with them, you have your life insurance with them, your medical aid with them. They have got access to how you drive so they can see um, happy is leaving uh, taboo at 2 a.m. buying cigarettes at the local petrol station and then doing 200 on the M1 on his way to Pretoria. But then happy is saying he doesn't smoke when he's doing his vital vitality assessment. Do you, do you understand? So uh, this is one of, one of the things that the banking is doing. They're getting you in, getting your data, so they can tell you they're going to sell you personalized products that reduces your risk premiums. Look at Discovery now, if you're there. You have to eat so much healthy food because when you swipe, it's linked to your Woolies. It tells you you bought too many sweets. So like one month, I bought 20 sweets or 20 sweet things. I didn't get my 500 rand back from Discovery because I, you see. Now, that is what they're doing. They're then going to be able to price your life insurance accordingly to how much you consume and stuff, and they will be picking up if you're lying about what you consume, etc. Okay, um, so again, that's really why they're stepping into that. Uh, crazy times. Again, linking into this one, um, virtual cards popularity. So FNB says uh, millennials and Gen X, that should be us, maybe not Rendani. Um, we are leading the digital payment option. So FNB's got. 3 million virtual cards that were activated with over 6.6 .6 billion uh, spent uh, in that period since it was launched in 2021. Uh, I've got like two virtual cards, three virtual cards. I don't even carry cash anymore. I feel so bad sometimes when I go to the shopping center and the guy there by the parking wants things because I, I don't need to draw cash anymore. You can just, you know, tap everywhere. Um, so convenience, um, that's nice. But again, Remember, you're sharing your data and your things with these people. Linking into uh, local things and monetary policy, I am a strong, strong believer that raising interest rates to counter inflation is not the way to do it um, and to stimulate economic growth. I'm not of that school of thought, of that classic school of thought, um, because you're just making people more depressed. I don't even want to go out anymore. You know, like things have just gotten so much more expensive. And then what does that mean? I'm going to tell my boss I want a massive increase. They're not going to want to give it to me. I'm not going to be happy at my job. I'm going to look for a new one. And this is what happens to everyone. So, you know, the World Bank agrees with me now. So this is why I'm putting this here. They've warned our Reserve Bank that they are being too aggressive with the interest hikes and they can hamper economic activity, which is what I think they are doing. So, yes, they're bringing costs down, but now people aren't going to want to expand, lay out money, build their businesses, hire new people, which means GDP is taking a hit as a result of that. Um, so... Definitely uh, not a fan of this. Fun one, uh, Europe energy crisis affecting Xmas. So, you know, there's a war going on uh, there in Europe. Because of that, Europe's struggling with energy with Russia, because Russia, Ukraine are massive exporters of energy. And because of the sanctions, Russia's like, 
You sanction me, I'm not giving you gas. Bah. So, what the European countries are doing, or they have a couple of countries have now instituted literally laws on when you can light your Christmas lights. So, in Lisbon, for example, in Portugal, you can only switch on your Christmas lights between 6 p.m. and midnight, right? To me, that sounds normal. I'm from South Africa. How December is summer. We don't even do Christmas lights. But remember, Europe, it's colder, it's darker, and Christmas is a big thing for them. So this, you know, is hitting them where it hurts, um, the war. Then lastly on this page, uh, Bank of England intervention, save fire sales. So Liz Truss, Conservative Party Prime Minister, who essentially got elected um, because she said she will give corporations a tax cut. Boris Johnson said, I'm not doing that. He gets kicked out as leader. Liz Truss gets in. She tries, says she's going to do this, tries to give about 60 billion uh, pounds in tax cuts to to the wealthy, so businesses, investors, rich people, etc. Uh, but it was unfunded, and the budget was going to have to be come from somewhere. Probably poor people, food, housing, those types of things. You know most how they do it. Um, the market didn't like that, so they started selling treasury bonds, uh, government bonds, gilts, their inflation-linked trackers, uh, which led to the the price of those bonds decreasing, which means pension fund assets come down because pension funds are the biggest consumer of inflation in trackers across the globe. Um, it's like a requirement. Anyway, so that's coming down. And the pound, as a result, came crashing down. Um, she's now since reversed that and she's fired the finance minister that implemented that. And now they're already asking for her to be fired. So. It looks like she's giving us a, a that weekend special, like that other guy that was our one weekend finance minister. Okay, moving on to local news. Some, if we look at uh, Transnet, so Transnet uh, is having a massive strike. They're fighting for five percent increase, which I think is fair given that inflation is probably going to be seven percent this year. Um, uh, Transnet saying no. And as a result, um, a whole lot of companies are being affected, mainly our mining companies, um, Kumba, etc. cetera. Uh, Kumba issued out a sense announcement that they are going to lose about 120,000 tons of sales per day um, due to the strike because they can't export this coal to China where it mainly goes. Um, and then the fruit farmers are also complaining because one spring just ended, they just harvested all of South Africa's best fruit needs to go to Europe, Asia and America. And it's sitting in containers getting rotten. So they also complaining that they're going to lose quite a lot of money uh, as a result of that strike. Glencore, uh, it's a mining company. Uh, I, I see this article like every 18 months. Glencore accused of corruption, bribery, to get mines, whatever, like, yeah, nothing new here. They're facing litigation in the UK. Share price will take a dip. They'll make ridiculous amounts of money from the place they caused this corruption, and it will be forgotten. And 18 months again, you'll see this headline. Oh, their CEO is South African, Ivan Glasenberg. 
Um, so, you know, I'm not saying that is a thing, but you know South Africans and corruption. Cool. Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse, one of those big investment banks, have been accused of rigging the RAND and a whole lot of other currencies. This is also one of those things close to my heart because I believe the RAND is undervalued um, because of things like this. This is not the first bank that's going to be fined for rigging the RAND. Our very own APSA were fined not so long ago for rigging the RAND along with other banks. And yeah, it's it's just, I just think it's not a good practice as a South African to do this. Um, but this is a, a foreign bank that did this. And the reason this is, yeah, because Credit Suisse are suffering at the moment. Um, there's a whole lot of bad derivatives and things they trades they made that are essentially locking in losses and there's been concerns about the liquidity of the of the company uh one and a lot of the senior executives directors managers etc have been leaving the company i saw one uh, earlier this afternoon on bloomberg another see something oh is leaving the company uh so credit suisse again suffering basically like layman's brothers issues there oh no we we liquid enough and then boom gone um that could potentially happen there some positive news just just one positive news uh jse new york stock exchange they've they've uh, announced a collaboration of due listing so they'll make it easier for companies to do list between the two stock exchanges so hopefully we can see some american companies come across uh and and list on on our markets then uh this should read us china chip war i typed this very late at night so we have got like a cold war type of vibes going on between you the us and china they've been fighting for a lot of things this year um and it really also just got worse when nancy pelosi went to go visit taiwan taiwan's one of those it's like a lesotho outside of south africa but China wants it to be, you know, part of South Africa. So it's one of those things, a whole lot of political things going on there. The U.S. Uh, basically said, screw you to the chi to China. We're going to go, you know, visit these people. And now they are having like a cold economic war, which affects all of us. And basically what's happening here is uh, Biden has signed in legislation that restricts the number of chips uh, that can go to China. So the Chinese then convert these things and these chips, you know, go into our phones, laptops, PlayStations, whatever. Um, so yeah, there's some serious issues there. And the stock companies, the tech stocks uh, in China lost quite a bit of value when that was announced. Um, they lost like 4% on the day. Then um, lastly, looking at our news uh, called delaying that vacation. So the articles why travel stocks tank today. So Airbnb, hotels, etc. across the globe, and this was last week. Uh, they lost quite a bit of percentage. Uh, Airbnb lost like five percent on the day, and the reason for this is because the IMF, International Monetary Fund, has come out and said that global growth uh, will be. They've revised the estimate downwards. So you think 2022 was a terrible year, my friend. The IMF says 2023 is going to be worse. Uh, and that is why 
travel stocks, so travel companies, hotels, Airbnb, airlines, their stocks went down because people are going to have less disposable income um, and therefore um, it's not looking optimistic for those companies. Okay, and that is that is it from Aiden Ostasen, your news anchor uh, on EPC News Channel. Are there any questions? My friend T. Uh, yeah, just the last question on, on my side. Um, I see you mentioned something about this um, semiconductors issue, uh, Taiwan and, and, and US. Um, what is your view on the, because I read another article where they were saying uh, a French shoring is becoming a, a big thing where uh, the Western countries that um, kind of um, run the whole world. I mean, it was actually fueled by, by this uh, Russia, uh, Ukraine war. Uh, so the issue is um, there has been a quite a, some kind of division. I mean, you know, the, the geopolitics it, now it's, it's becoming more intense where uh, they say the US is actually putting some policies where they only want to trade with partners that uh, share the same values with them. So usually it's US and EU. I mean, those are kind of chomi chomi for quite long. And uh, I just wanna know from, from your analysis when you do your investment analysis, how does that's gonna affect South Africa going forward? Uh, because um, South Africa is kind of in between uh, uh, you know, they are with the BRICS, and then BRICS is the opposite of the EU and the Western countries. So if, I mean, we kind of caught in between, we have to choose a side at some point, you know. So how does that going to affect, like, the economy in general if this thing gets quite worse going forward? Well, um, I just want to tell you what Biden said last night. I'm not a, I'm not happy with what he said, but I'm just Aiden Ostasen from South Africa. I can't do anything. So Biden um, blamed the strengthening dollar on the rest of the world not doing enough uh, in the local economies. They're not growing it, and they're doing. They've got poor policy and growth and blah blah blah. It's not his fault that you know the dollar is so strong. Um, and I disagree because if you're going to increase your interest rates and the dollar is seen as uh, it's the trading currency of the world, number one, and two, it's seen as, uh, well, dollar treasury bonds are seen as riskless asset, right? If you're going to, if you're doing a valuation and you're looking for a risk-free and let's say it's not, you know, a South African company, it's global, whatever, you're going to then synthesize what a risk-free rate is in that country utilizing a treasury bond right uh, from from the american so obviously if you increase your interest rates the risk-free rate went up why would i not then go earn strong uh, dollar denominated currencies by investing in the dollar which then keeps pushing the dollar stronger and stronger because people are taking their money out of south africa and putting it into your dollar 
what do I think about the West and um, what they are doing? I think uh, America are imperialists, and it's very ironic. Um, they they love establishing and doing things elsewhere, but you can't do it to them. Uh, a lot of people don't understand where this Russia-Ukraine war kind of comes from. Number one, one of the reasons is America wanted to build a NATO base on the, what side is Russia? East, on the east, northeastern border of Ukraine. Very close, like missiles and missile launches, like a proper base with those things that can send nukes, not, well, not nukes, but missiles into Russia, meaning they literally your enemy is building a base right next to you. If Russia tried to do, build a base in Mexico on the border of Texas, do you think America would allow that? And I think we can all say no, right? America would never allow that. The world almost had a nuclear war in the 70s because Russia went through help Cuba by building a, a, a missile base there. And we almost had nuclear war, 70s, 80s, whenever that thing happened. Um, so my answer to that is America are being bullies. They're being imperialists, them and the West. They love saying this is how things should be done. But obviously they, they want to keep the status quo with regards to how things are. Um, so China, I think, are uh, understandable um, in their in their defense of the economy. Um, we can go into whether China's right or wrong. We can do that for every single country. But I, I agree with 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 China's response. And then coming to South Africa, it's tough because on the one hand, we're part of the G20, which is Western bloc of countries. On the other hand, we BRICS, they are trading partners. China helps out uh, with quite a bit of development and things compared to America. Uh, America gives aid. That's America's way of helping out. So America won't come here and build a road. They'll give you money, which we all know goes to the government to eat and buy Mercedes Benz. China, on the other hand, will send people here and build things. You know, they will build things. Yes, it's at loans and whatever sometimes, but I would rather have that partner, you know, than that partner. So I wouldn't want Ramaphosa's job right now. Uh, that's my answer. It's it's a tough it's a tough thing. America's the biggest economy. They've got so much influence on so many things. You don't want to really piss them off. But at the same time, China's got your back more than they do. Yeah. Um Okay, one more question. If there's not, I'm going to move on and wrap up, guys. Otherwise, I'm going to be with you guys here till midnight. Okay, um, moving on uh, to personal investing. This is one of my favorite little apps, and it's called Stash. Um, so Stash, um, it's created by Liberty. Um, so it's a, you can download it on the App Store, etc. So basically what Stash does is you link Stash to your card. Um, I know a lot of you guys have got those, you know, black, private banking, all of those types of cards. So you link it to those, your nice little 
check cards, your virtual cards, whatever. Um, and then what Stash does is you can configure it and I'll get into it. But what it does is simply how it was created and how I heard about it is, let's say you go to the shop and you buy uh, something for 23 Rand 80 cents. You can set it up to round up to the nearest 5 Rand or the nearest 10 Rand, 20 Rand, etc. So let's go to our 23 Rand 80 example. If you round up to the nearest 5 Rand, it will put away 120, rounding up to 25 Rand. If you say nearest 10 Rand, it will then put away 620, rounding up to 30 bucks. You can then set a limit for the month. So it will do this every day, um, but to prevent uh, extensive bank charges, I think they, they build it up for like every two weeks or end of the month, you can set those things, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Um, and then that money gets put away. Then they invest that money into, again, linking into my problem with, with South African investing in the top 40 index. So they do index uh, investing, so like an ETF, they buy top 40 shares, and then the rest goes in, and then the other portion goes to cash. So I think it's about 60-40, uh, so 60% shares, 40% cash. Um, and yeah, that gets invested and it's tax free. So you get, you know, this, the, that section, whatever certificate via your email address for tax season. And it's, it's very easy to think. Other thing that's fun about it is you've got, you can set, like I said, your monthly limit. So let's say with all those little stashes, it gets to 200, but you've set your monthly limit to 300. It will then add that 100 rand at the end of the month and top you up to 300. You can do things like stash when it's sunny, it puts five rand away if the weather is above, I think 24, 25 degrees Celsius. Um, it stashes when there's load shedding, so you'll be stashing every day. Um, it was fun back when load shedding came once every now and then. You can stash when you sweat, so when you exercise, you achieve your goal, it puts away money, and then Another nice thing I've actually started doing is this 10 cent challenge. So rather than, you know, physically going and putting your 10 cents and growing that number every day by 10 cents for a year, you do this and it will then take this money. Then when one year comes, it lets you know, boom, you, you can. And oh, another fun thing is you can access your money whenever. Um, it takes about a day or two uh, to liquidate your cash and just under a week to liquidate the stocks. Um, so it's a nice little way to build up cash um, that you can forget about. So if we look at the graphs, for example, if you did the 10 Rand a day challenge, so every day you just invested 10 Rand, um, which is what that uh, just over 3000 Rand a year, you would have in 2016 for six years, that would have been worth 27,000. And you can see you obviously would have lost some money in 2020 with COVID, but that all came back and you would have been richer. If you just invested that um, into, you know, you just put that money there, that's how much you would have had. If you did that 10 rand a day for since uh, March 2020, um, you would have had eight and a half thousand rand at the end of May 2022. Okay, so. This is just showing you, um, you know, just by putting 
that little bit of money away, you can build up a nice little stash. Okay, that is it from me, guys. Um, I don't mind staying on for a few more questions. So if you have questions, by all means, uh, I will take some more. Um, otherwise, thank you. That's it for me. Cheers. I know you have better things to do. Get on out of here. Thank you so much, Aaron. Um, are you still here? Yeah, I'm still here. No, thank you so much. Uh, I think that there was quite a a bit more than the JSC listing, uh, and I think it was quite interesting. Um, and also your views about our dear government, but let's <laughs> leave it there. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, uh, thank you everyone for a very engaging session. I think we went a bit over time, but I hope you took quite a lot from it. And um, yeah, um, all the best with everything. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Cheers.